A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you not listen to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday night, it's Top of the Pops, it's December the 17th, 1987, it's cover versions, it's loads of gelled up blokes in suits, it's absolute cat shit. Hey up, you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome back to the third part of Chart Music number 46. Sarah B. Hiya. David Stubbs. Hello, hello. I am still reeling from the shitness we had to witness in that last part. Fucking hell. <sighs> this is not good. Mm. Well, you know, hang in there. Yeah. The shitness we had to witness. Something like that, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's not fanny about them. No. Yep. Let's just gird our loins and get stuck in. Hopefully uh, something will turn up. Yeah. I'm sure it will. And how strange the change from Michael to Gary. Yeah, great. Let's have a look at the ups and downs of this week's top 40. A new entry at number 40, Kiss and Reason to Love. Second new entry at 39, The Christians with Ideal World. At 38, it's Boy George to Be Reborn. New entry number 3 comes in at 37, Sunita's GTO. Wally Jump Jr. with Tighten Up is a new entry at 36. And 35, Rick Astley, Whenever You Need Somebody. New entry at 34 for The Smiths, Last Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me. Nina Simone, My Baby Just Cares For Me at 33. At 32, Whitesnake and Here I Go Again. The House Martins Build at 31. And a new entry for Jellybean at 30, Jingo. Bill Medley, Jennifer Warns, I've Had the Time of My Life, is this week's 29. And at 28, it's Cutting Crew, and I've Been in Love Before. Some Guys from Maxi Priest is this week's 27. And at 26, it's Five Star with Somewhere, Somebody. New Orders, Touched by the Hand of God, and New Entry at 25. And Satellite from the Hooters is this week's number 24. At 23, I'm the Man from Anthrax. And up to this week's 22 goes level 42 with Children's Say. Wet, 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 big leap to 21 this week with Angel Eyes. And Nat King Cole's When I Fall in Love, a new entry at 20. Highest new entry from former go-go Belinda Carlisle, Heaven is a Place on Earth at 19. And at 18, the Communards never can say goodbye. A big leap to 17 from 33 for Simply Red and Every Time We Say Goodbye. And So Emotional from Whitney Houston is this week's 16. 
to number 15 from 27 goes Johnny Hates Jazz, Turn Back the Clock. And Paul McCartney's Once Upon a Long Ago is this week's 14. 13 this week, Got My Mind Set on You from George Harrison. Proclaimers, Letter from America is at 12. And at number 11, Alexander O'Neill with Criticize. Absolutely adore this new record. Hope it's going to be number one for Christmas. The Pogues and Kirsty McCall and the fabulous fairy tale of New York. This is. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, and see another one. After Reed demonstrates what a piss poor singer he is, <laughs> and the viewing audience sigh with relief that he's not been allowed to bring his guitar to the studio, Davis leads us into the first three quarters of this week's top 40. From number 40 to number 11. Fucking hell, they chonked through that, didn't they? Yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. This is really the dawning of Top of the Pops beginning to dispense with the charts as soon as possible, isn't it? Yeah. Not like me, you know, and I used to have my little exercise book and write down all the kind of what had gone up and what had gone down. I suppose people like me were yeah. oh, did you? on the ground. Have you still got yeah, those? Yeah, a little yeah. exercise book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three different felt tip pens. A grey felt tip if, you know, if, if a song maintained its position, etc., etc. And then coloured ones if it went up or down. Amazing. Sarah, were you um, chart obsessed at this time? Uh, not in precisely that way. You weren't? Tapping things into your personal organiser or your file of <laughs> No, no, I wasn't. Whatever else I was doing, I, it, it was not that. But um, I definitely, there's something strangely reassuring about uh, about the charts. Yeah. There were highs and lows. There were tears. There was laughter. So yeah, you know. it was an uncertain world. Yes, indeed. This chart rundown, I counted eighteen suits. <laughs> You did a, you did a yeah. suit count. Yeah. It's interesting to note, however, that the disgusting habit of rolling up the sleeves of one suit has been consigned to the dustbin of history by late 1987. Only the two lads in Five Star are doing that now. Yeah, good. What do you have against exposed forearms, Al? Oh, on a s- It's not that. If you want to expose your forearm, wear a T-shirt yeah. or a short sleeve shirt, you know? Don't roll your suit jackets up. When you're about your business, you, you need your upper arms to be warm, but you need your wrists to be free to, you know, do what they want uh, any old time. Yeah, well, well, don't wear a jacket then. Simple as that. What if you've already got your jacket on? Well, you take it off and yeah. you put it on a coat hanger. You yes. put it on a coat hanger. Quite. Honestly, I thought you were complaining about everyone wearing suits. And now you're like, oh, carry around. A, a gentleman carries a coat hanger around with him. Yeah. And then you get your suit bag out and you put it in there and you hang it up responsibly. <laughs> and then before you put it back on, you must steam it. Yeah. Yes. With your portable steamer. Put it away for the next wedding or funeral. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a disgrace. It's like a cold porter, you know, a glimpse of stocking was something perfectly shocking. Well, you know, it's a bit like, you know, a glimpse of wrist, you know, makes us feel very pissed or something. I don't know. Something yeah. along those lines. You know, it's, yes. heaven knows anything goes. It's all bloody Miami Vice's fault, of course. I mean, I, yes. it's all that wank, isn't I, it? So it's that kind of, you know. Yeah. What, you know. Hungerford Massacre and blokes rolling their sleeves off. That's that's the, yeah, yeah. the dowry that Miami Vice brought to the table. Yes, yes, I pretty know. much. I, I, feel, I feel like I feel like we're scratching the surface of something here. I mean, I don't know. Maybe mm. we should leave it for mm. now. I, I don't. I don't know what's going to get stirred up. The rundown images are, are of course, 
boringly proficient by now. But, you know, Top of the Pops has made up for that by slapping everything on in a fucking awful late 80s background of green, purple and mm. yellow splodges. So it makes them pictures look like posters on Adrian Mole's bedroom wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, we should point out that the graphics at this point are shocking. Really kind of fucking really terrible, like... Aren't they? boxy sort of ugly primary colours. It's like a sort of um, when you were at school and you would kind of get you get the good building blocks and you get the kind of crappy off-brand ones and they're sort of there were always too many missing yeah. and stuff. It's like that. It's just like the yeah. the arse end of the box of blocks. Mm. If you were going on a, a, a commando raid on the set of Rainbow, this is the camouflage you'd be wearing. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a sort of over-enthusiastic response to the, the dark rafters of 70s Top of the Pops, really, mm. and all through it. Yeah. So like, light, yeah, excitement, but- fun, glitterball, energy, energy. You know, it's like, turn yeah. it off. I mean, the only interesting pictures by now, well, in this week anyway, was the, the pitch for the Smiths that wasn't Morrissey. Yeah. Or was it? Are you, yeah, yeah. That's, um, it looks more like Edwin Collins. Yes, it does. It's, yeah, it except does. Not, I, I, yeah, yeah. I have my doubts about that one. I thought yeah. you could just Doesn't about... look like Murray Melvin either, so... <laughs> Is it Mike Joyce? I think it needs to be one that's thrown out to the pop craze youngsters, actually, that image. Oh, who'll yeah. immediately go, oh, that's him, stupid cunts. Yeah, what exactly. The fuck do they know about know. pop music. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, the other interesting image is uh, a New Order dressed up as a glam metal band. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, that was quite funny. When I first saw this, I thought, oh, they got the wrong picture. Ha, ha, ha. Fucking mm. hilarious. Then I realised it was actually New Order. And then I thought, oh, they've, they've just done it for this picture. They've given it to Top of the Pops. And I thought, oh, man, imagine if New Order did that for every new single. They just sent Top of the Pops an image of themselves as another band, like, I don't know, Show Waddy Waddy or, mm. or uh, I don't know, <laughs> Bay City Rollers or something like that. But no, it's from their video uh, that was out oh, at the time. And, that is a um, shame. That, that would be a good You know, prank, for a moment, I was, I was nearly interested by New Order. <laughs> it was quite... Quite shocking experience. <laughs> I wonder if it's the sort of thing they would have done as Joy Division. I imagine that Sylvie and Curtis would have uh, slapped a veto on it. Yeah. Or he might have been up for it, you never know. We never got to see the uh, the, the amusing side of Ian Curtis, did we? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, they like to laugh. They were northerners. We like a laugh up north. They like to rub their own shit on light fittings and then yeah. smash the light bulbs in toilets. <laughs> yep, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Witty stuff, you know. The Beatles of Aventis uh, <laughs> Indy, they were. Eventually, Reed tells us that he hopes the next single will be this year's Christmas number one. It's Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues and Kirsty McCall. Formed in London from the ashes of the Nipple Erectors and the Millwall Chainsaws, later the New Republicans, in 1982, Pogue Mahone were forced to change their name in 1984 after Gaelic speakers in Scotland complained that their name meant Kiss My Arse. After supporting a Clash tour, they were picked up by Stiff Records and put out the LPs Red Roses for Me and Rum, Sodomy and the Lash. But it wasn't until 1986 that they made the top 40 when the Poker Tree in Motion EP got to number 29 in March of that year. This is the follow-up, of sorts, to the Irish Rover, their collaboration with the Dubliners, which got to number eight in April of this year, and it's also the lead-off track from their next LP, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. It was originally written in 1985, when their producer Elvis Costello bet the band they couldn't do a Christmas hit record, but it was set aside when Stiff went into administration and Cato Riordan, the original co-singer, left the band. 
After signing to Warner Brothers in late 1986, they came back to the song when recording their third LP at Rack Studios, but that take features Shane McGowan singing both the male and female parts. And it wasn't until August of this year that their new producer, Steve Lillywhite, suggested a suitable replacement. His missus, Kirsty McCall. It entered the charts two weeks ago at number 40, and this week it's jumped 11 places to number 8, and here they are in the top of the pop studio. Now, me dears, this is the second time the Pogues have appeared on Top of the Pops, so the audience has already been sort of primed for the sight of Shane McGowan, but, you know, in the middle of all these sooty lads smiling and everything, it must have been must have been quite terrifying. <laughs> yeah, the Pogues. Um... I had a bit of a downer on the pose. Um, one thing, they weren't the young gods. Um, but, you know, most yes. definitely, you know, in the sense that um, there, there was something that the whole ethos of that kind of sort of, you know, folksiness and rootiness just, see, you know, I was a kind of a bit of a futurist at the time. Well, I still am, really. And just everything oh, about yes. them, everything that they seemed to sort of celebrate, or people celebrated in them, was just going completely the other direction from the stuff that I was kind of invested in and evangelising about. You know, and I just thought, you know, all this kind of writhing about in the metaphorical mud, you know, or, or the actual mud if they played at Finsbury Park was, um, you know, it wasn't really... Um, it, you know, it wasn't really what uh, the dialectical requirements uh, of the day were all about, you know. Well, David, I fucking love the Pogues at this time. All right, yeah. As I mentioned earlier at college, there was a lot of tape trading going on, and I had a mate called Jim. He came from the uh, posh end of town, and he wore German army mm. shirts and all that kind of shit. And, uh, yeah, we got traded and everything, and he, he put a lot of really good shit my way, like Jimi Hendrix uh, and The Clash, and, he you know, he gave me a tape of uh, Rum, Sodomy and The Lash, and it was like, fucking hell, I love this shit. Mm. To me, it was the nearest I was ever going to get to punk mm. in a contemporary sort of setting. So, yeah, I fucking love the Pogues around about this time. Yeah, there's there's mm. something kind of yeah. lusty and rough and arsy about it, isn't there? And, um, you know, but as a Christmas song, this is, you know, it kind of stands apart, doesn't it, really? There isn't anything else like it. Yes, it does, and yes. I love it. I mean, I've I've always loved it and I will never tire of, of hearing it, really. I like all the best Christmas songs are melancholy as fuck. And yes. this is, but there's so much in it. It's so rich. It's very joyous, but it's also really grim and... And sort of rollicking mm. and there's so much going on with it and it's so odd it's it's not like anything else on on top of the pops and it, yeah so oh no so this performance we've got shane mcgowan kind of um there's a tatty brown upright piano um which already yeah. looks so weird it's like they've just kind of hauled it out of a out of the local kind of pub with the sort of tobacco yellow mm. walls and just dragged it yeah. in and stuck it on the stage and put plonked Shane McGowan, propped him up. Kirsty is sort of leaning yeah. on it, looking uh, kind of sultry. Uh, yeah, I'm fucked off. Yeah, just looking, just sort of pouting. And um, and he's kind of miming badly, and he's, he's got round shades mm. on. He sort of looks typically like yeah. a like a bloodhound just coming around from anaesthesia, <laughs> sort of slobbering. He's the first bloke we've seen not in a suit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, who who is this? Is he even allowed here? Yeah, because the Pogues, you know, they were wearing suits right up till this point, weren't they? And then they, yeah, and then they just yeah, discovered. Yeah, in that, that in that old show band 
style. Yeah, yeah. He's got a really nasty baggy leather jacket on mm. and uh, a white t-shirt and some shades. He essentially looks like the Fonz at 70. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Fonz has kind of fallen through a wormhole. And... Who actually lives in that toilety office now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just the whole thing has just got such gusto mm. and... You know, listening to watching this and and kind of uh, you know doing doing a bit of research for this, it's yeah. There's just there's so much to it, and yet it's so kind of yeah. light. It's such a kind of easy listen in in some ways. So it's quite a remarkable mm. record, I think, and it's quite remarkable the sort of the story of yeah. it and the the history that it's you know and the life that it's had is uh, is quite amazing. I mean, like all great Christmas songs, Christmas is pretty much incidental to this, isn't it? It's about the great Christmas tradition of being trapped with your family members and having a good row. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's also because it's like a lot of Christmas songs, it's so familiar that you kind of mm. feel like, you know, it's, it's just part of your life and it's always been there. And, you yeah. know, when you start to sort of unpick it a bit, it's like, oh, fucking hell. So it's actually really cleverly written in so many ways. You know, obviously he starts off in, in the drunk tank and he's he's thinking of her but as you go if you if you sort of read the lyrics it's like you're not quite sure when this is happening you're not quite sure i mean mm. is it it's in this kind of alcoholic fug and it's like are they yes. together are they not together is it are they are yeah. they there at christmas are they remembering stuff are they projecting stuff at one point she's in the hospital yeah like lying there almost dead on a drip in that bed so is he? Yeah, it's with- like a flashback in Raging Bull, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but you, d- yeah, and you don't know. It's quite disorientating. But all the time, there's this really yeah. pretty melody that that kind of yeah. doesn't. So you don't connect. There's this kind of weird dissonance about that, which is which yeah. is so clever. I mean, there's a school of thought that says that uh, the, the the actual back and forth interplay by McCall and uh, McGowan is actually going on in his head. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. and he's he's essentially having an argument with himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, there's there's kind of there's kind of no way to know, and you can read it various different ways, you can hear it different ways, but uh, yeah, mm. like I said, you don't, mm. you kind of don't notice this until you have to look at it for a podcast because, you know, like like all the Christmas songs, they're all kind of tarnished or worn smooth by repetition, and also mm. by repetition in in places of of shopping and at times of heightened stress and or boredom and yeah. having to be nice to people that you hate and spend money on them. So, you know. Yeah. It's like a kind of sodden Irish-American Dickens. Mm. Here's a couple of derelicts. And mm. they're obviously... Go- they might have some happy memories together and they might have a future, but probably not. Probably they're going to freeze to death in a doorway and be buried in unmarked yeah. graves. It's really dark. And the key line, of course, is I could have been someone, well, so could anyone. Oh. It's oh. because you know the other thing about Christmas is that it, it is a time that you that you look back and you spurn noddy holder. You don't look to the future. You leave that for New Year's, but you look back and you know. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? Yeah, uh, well, put my missus in hospital. <laughs> what have you Pretty done? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, it is a time for um, regretful looking back and mm. thinking, oh. You know, I should be in a better place than I am now. Well, yeah, that sort of ruefulness. Mm. But that, that is the kind of Dickensian mm. thing. It is a bit kind of a Christmas carol. It's like yeah. the kind of Christmas karma. Like, are you going to take stock of your of your shit right now or yes. not? Or are you just going to get really drunk and forget all about it? Or both. Yeah. You know, and yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's all of that is all in there. Um, yeah. In this very um, jolly package. It's, mm. oh, it's devastating. It really is. Yeah. 
I mean, Chaps, the last time we saw Kirsty McColl on Chart Music, she was essentially acting as the Happy Mondays social worker. Uh, <laughs> but she seems a lot more comfortable in this setting, yeah. on that piano. Well, she had um, she suffered quite badly from stage fright, as as I understand. And um, right, but it's the kind of thing that you can't. I don't know if that applies when when you're on top of the pops. I would I would imagine that it that it does. It's a it's a weird thing, stage fright. You know, it's it's like mm. it's completely understandable as kind of phobias go. It's like, oh yeah. god, everyone looking at me. But I mean, you know, she mm. seems she seems very cool and very sort of together. And they have a little. Yeah. It's quite it, it's quite sweet and awkward because they have a little. They hold hands and they have yeah. a little. They have a little dance, and you know, and it's lovely. Well, but it, well, it's more like she's supporting Shane McGowan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he has a little. He has a little slumps lean. into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I guess we could get into the whole angle of the of the lyrics and the offensiveness thereof. Oh, yes. I think it's very ironic right at the beginning that Mike Reed talks about how he really wants this to be the Christmas number one. Mm. And it obviously contains a line about cheap, lousy faggot. And it's a, yeah. a striking contrast there with his attitude towards Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And yes. <laughs> well, uh, you see, this is the thing. And I don't, uh, mm, I do not have a complete, annoyingly, as as... As a, whenever there's something really fucking important and uh, and I have to uh, have an opinion on it, my opinion is that I don't fucking know, um, but I do. I have a lot. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I just don't have any any final conclusion. Um, Shane McGowan's line on the word is that it was. It's a kind of slang usage. It's not, you know, it is. It is not a homophobic usage, but also it's a character that he was trying to write authentically, who is you know, kind of a, a nasty fucker and is just throwing out whatever she can. And so it's it's meant to be offensive in that context. You know, it is in that kind of theatrical context. But of course, then it, these things do pierce through into the real world. And unfortunately, and I, I get really, I, I, I think fiction, which is basically what this is, needs to be ring-fenced to a certain extent. Otherwise, you, you are completely hamstrung. You can't yeah, you can't express things, but yeah. you can get into. Obviously, there's the word "slut" in there as well, yes. which um, and and mm. other people. The thing is, it's not like it's just me. There has been a lot of dithering, a lot of going back and forth. Um, apparently, in 2007, yes. uh, Radio One agreed to censor it, and then agreed not to censor it yeah. on the same day. They went back and they had an official <laughs> decision, and then a few hours later, they went, "Oh, no, 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 no. so I mean, the BBC just just. BBCing really hard even then. Yes. The thing is, I feel like it's churlish. If enough people, I mean, last year there was a big thing about it and a lot of people said, look, this is not how, you know, you don't want to hear this now. And mm. it's a bit churlish if you take the opposite side to that and go, no, free speech, and you become one of those people. Yeah. Just give it up. Do you know what I mean? It's like, don't be a prick about it. Even Shane McGowan was not super gracious about it, but was like, well, if you don't understand that I'm not being offensive, then fine, censor it, I don't care. Mm. Which is is kind of you know it it's he could have been more gracious about it but he could have been more of a cunt about it so I don't know I think personally I would say for the sake of not being a prick at Christmas um, <laughs> just, you know just just give it a bleep you know it's probably it is a it is a word I mean because I know the weight that it carries now I yeah. kind of don't I I hesitate I hesitate to say it even it's like yeah. These things do kind of, they do matter, you know. But then then on the matter of the word slut, I kind of don't care. Mm. But then, I mean, it goes on and on with this because it's like, 
in this performance, you get Happy Christmas, your ass, because supposedly yes. that's less bad than ass. Top of the pops, they're okay with faggot in 1987, not so much with ass. <laughs> But but Kirsty, bless her, she does that thing that um, Kate Bush did in the video for WoW and slaps her ass as she says mm, ass. Yes. And to be fair, she is living in New York. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. Well, where are they from? You see, you don't even you don't even know how have they ended up in in New York. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're yeah, Irish yeah. Americans, aren't they? Yeah, and yeah. somehow fetched up in New York, come recently off the boat or something, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. You know, because they very much retain their sort of yeah. Irishness and. You know, Gaelic overtones. They haven't been Americanized. They're not second generation. You know, so, mm. yeah. yeah. But they have done enough to absorb the word faggot, which actually seems slightly odd and out of context <sighs> used by this particular character. I suspect it was just McGowan casting around in the rhyming book for maggot. Faggot wasn't really part of the vernacular in Britain in 1987. It wasn't, no. That's the thing, you know. So, so it always sounds slightly odd for that you know, reason. In fact, that's why I always actually thought that it was just used in, in some other context. You know. This is the weird thing is that, um, mm. you know, the word bugger, which I think all of us probably use all the time without really remembering that that, that I, I feel like that's lost mm. a lot. That There was a time where that was a worse mm. word than it is now and it's actually kind of become neutralised in some way. There's definitely, mm. there, there's yeah. still yeah. contexts in which I wouldn't say it, but, you know, but it just goes to show the kind of... Uh, amorphous, difficult nature of these things, the slippery nature of of words and terms, and mm. Um, mm. you know, this is going to. I'm sure they'll. There might be a point in the future. It's like, is it better or worse? To do you keep on? Do you keep saying it until it loses all of its meaning? Do you lock it away and say we don't say that anymore? Um, and again, I am not taking. I'm not taking any firm position on this either way because you kind of can't in the end. But with this song, I think probably just to be polite, you know, just to be nice, just to not be a prick is probably the the better way. Of course, when it was covered by fucking Ronan, it became your cheap and your haggard. Well, she did, Kirsty did that in the first place, didn't she? Um, There was a time that I I don't know, like I said, I I kind of looked this up and there's this rabbit hole of like all the, you know, Mm. the times when it's been okay, the times when it hasn't and, you know, how they've tried to get around it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I I feel like if you're going to do it now, just, just, it's got to be a swear. I mean, they are rat. They're ranting and screaming at each other. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, um, there's a couple of mentions of punks in there. Mm. The word punk had a different meaning before. I mean, for yes. for a couple of hundred years, it meant prostitute. Yeah. And then you get into the uh, the kind of the early the early seventies usage in America before it was adopted by by musicians. Mm. It was a derogatory term for, you know, a younger man who'd be used for sex by older men in prison. Yes. So the thing about this is that, yeah, there's a lot of extremely spicy verbiage in there. And I mm. feel like it's such a it's such a great song. It's such a kind of majestic, wonderful, unique song that it needs to be. Mm. I would hate to see I would hate to see it kind of thrown out with with the bathwater of the uh, the difficulty of over the lyrics. You know, mm. I feel like it needs to be preserved and cherished and, and loved. Mm by generations yeah. to come it's just it, i don't know maybe it can be a teaching moment it's like you could say this but you can't say that but why hmm. mm. um yeah. and yeah if it comes yeah. down to it, if i have to be on one side or another i would have to side with the people who are going come on mate can't say that now because you kind of can't you wouldn't use it in any other context you two have been you know i you see i can't even say it even now it's just it's it's mm. a it's a horrible word but i appreciate mm. shane mcgowan's 
bold usage of it. At the time, it was absolutely right. Yeah, it's also supposed to be Irish slang for uh, for somebody who's lazy. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and of course, you know, a bit of kindling for burning as well. If we're going right back to the uh, the dawning of the world, yeah, and I think that is actually where there is actually a connection between the kindling thing and Mm. and the gay thing. Oh God, you you should have just called him a cunt, (laughs) Kirsten. Sounds so good in an Irish accent. That word. The thing, even about the word slut, is that it has more than one meaning yes. it's like do you remember there was a christ i really don't want to be in the position of having to defend a fucker from ukip but there was a fucker from ukip who said it mm. and he basically got do you remember, god this was a more innocent time he got basically booted out of ukip for saying slut but what in the context he was right. he was talking about um uh you know being slovenly it's kind of an right. old way of saying oh what a slut you know i've i've said this about myself before it's like oh dear i'm such a slut when i have not wiped mm. the worktops down in the kitchen you know Ugh. when i haven't done the washing up oh god what a terrible mm. slut i am because and it kind of amuses me to 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 use it in the way because it's you, you don't hear it now anyway um he was still a fucker and he can fuck off but yeah. it's a very difficult thing um basically it's always hard when there are these deeply important things, which are art and social progress, you know, cultural and social progress, and they're at odds with each other. They're sort of uh, banging into each other. Um, And you need them to be in harmony. They're kind of the double helix of enlightenment, aren't they? So you have to take... You can't Mm. be too flippant. You know, you you can't... You have to take these things seriously. Uh, Basically, it's like with with this... With the the word in question, like, would you use it in, in any other context other than maybe a discussion of what old-fashioned mincemeat treat you'd like for your tea. I mean, would you yes. would you say it in the pub? Would you say would you call a friend that even with however many layers of irony? Would you yell it at a stranger in the street or on the internet or on a podcast without heavy quote marks around it? Cuz if you wouldn't, mm. then that probably tells you something about the uh the resonance of it and um if there are people who are saying I think this contributes, this is kind of a little sharp pebble on the on the road to progress, you know, and it's something that might contribute to uh, an atmosphere and a really uncomfortable atmosphere that is oppressive for a certain group Mm. who are quite accustomed to being oppressed and kind of know what it's about. Mm. You should probably listen to that. I mean, it happened again this year, didn't it? It all flared up again. It's become quite the Christmas tradition, isn't Mm, it? You know that Santa's not far off when people start arguing the toss about the lyrics of uh, Fairy Tale in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of the time I think it's uh, it's not that it's necessarily performative, uh, the kind of the outrage, but um, I think for some people it is. I mean, what did that guy say? Uh, so people sort of um, making a, a huge deal of it and then being incredibly offensive in the, in themselves because people have these blind spots. Mm. You know, going going and, and tweeting and saying this is it's a disgusting record that's beloved only of chavs yeah we, we have a long way we have far to go still yeah i mean but but broadly speaking i think that this younger generation are genuinely more woke and perhaps people in my generation might hear something like that and think sort of maybe chuckle mm-hmm. a bit indulgently mm-hmm. oh but of course you can't really say that can you whereas i think the younger generation now you know they're conditioned quite frankly to be left genuinely cold by stuff like this and find this is completely mm. offensive and doesn't stir me in any way whatsoever yeah but yeah. but like i said I, I feel like you you know that said you you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and something like this mm. um the the greatness of this song is is also important so um these things uh, balance balance in all things
I'm working in a heroin reference as well. That was pretty decent for uh, 1987, wasn't it? Yeah, they never. It's almost like there's there's such an onslaught in this that they can't they can't bleep it all. You know. Mm. I wonder if it influenced it, Marty Pello hearing that. Oh. You know, this is what this is the power of words and songs. You see, another reason why it should be man up. Like, Ooh, heroin, eh? Mm, that's that's about heroin, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Jesus Christ. But it, it's, it's a beautiful, I have to say, it in, it's such a beautiful line. It's a horrible scabrous, you know. But it's, um, mm. yeah, you're a bum, you're a punk. You're an old slut on junk line. There I must die in a driving out bed. Which you can, <laughs> I never knew what it was for years. No. Because it's just this like, it's just like, <laughs> like you hardly, you hardly move your jaw at all. You just kind of flail your arms around and. Hello, I'm John Holmes, and yes, the last thing you need is another podcast that takes apart a television show and hacks through it like a cough going through a pensioner. Except wait, because this is the The One Show show in which myself and my guests force ourselves to watch a week's worth of TV's The One Show and then analyse it all in far too much detail. It sounds like a terrible idea, and it is for us. But for you, it's entertainment gold that's all over a programme you yourself have no intention of ever watching. The The One Show Show, every Tuesday and Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. David. Yes. You happened to review this album, didn't you? If I Shall Fall From Grace With God. So uh, please, regale the tale to the Paul Craig yeah, youngsters. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the album came out afterwards, if I'm yeah, right. Yeah, January. Yeah, it came out in, in, in January. Um, and Paul Mather, who was reviews editor at Melody Maker, decided, because he was aware of my feelings about the Pogues, that it might be an, an awful lark if I were to, um, you know, pen in my thoughts on it for the lead review. Um, now, what happened is, um, obviously, in those days, pre-internet, et cetera, et cetera, and there had to be very fast turnarounds. So basically, I had to come into the office on the Thursday and pick up a cassette, a preview, a cassette preview of this album. Not a CD. And then file the copy, 700 words, you know, the next, the next morning. You know, and that must fine. have been great, David, walking around with an album that hadn't mm. come out yet. You must have felt very Mr. Billy Big Bollocks. I did, yes. Those gonads swelling with pride, yes, definitely. <laughs> but, of course, you know, I didn't really have much time for that kind of testicular surge because it was a pretty very short window of time. Now, I've been looking after my younger brother, um, my mm. brother-in-law, as I said, was married at the time, and he was only 11. So 
um, I had to escort him back to um, Euston Station for him to get mm. the train, you know, put him on the train to go back up to Birmingham, where he lived. And um, what I did is I called in at, um, at the offices, which were in High Hoban at the time, picked up the um, cassette, um, and um, off we went, you know, set him off on the train with all his bags, etc., etc. Went back home, rummaged around my own bag, realised... Oh my God! I put the cassette in his bags. It's in oh, mate. with him. Yeah, I know. So okay, so it's now about sort of seven thirty, eight o'clock. Um, I had to wait for him to um, obviously to get back and get back in. So you know, give him a bell up in Birmingham and, and got Jas. Jas on the phone. And I said, Jas, mate, um, if you look around in your bag, there's a cassette, and it's. Um, by a group called the Pogues. Can you find it? Can you find it? And then he goes, "Oh yeah, all right." And he goes, um, you know, rummaging around. Says, "Yeah, I've got it." Ooh, excellent. So, said, so "Look, what I want you to do is, you know, you know, you've got your cassette player, your little cassette player. Can you um, put it by the phone and play it so that I can listen to it? Because I need to um, write a piece about it for Melody Maker for tomorrow." He says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah sure." <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. So he. That's right. Around about this time, I would assume that album reviewing consisted of someone like you sat in a music nah, room nah, nah, nah. with one hand up to your forehead and the other one with your quill in your hand just waiting to drop <laughs> the review upon which the whole world of the pop crazed youngsters will turn for a week. Yeah, I know. You'd think like that, wouldn't you? No, this is, this is how it was on this particular instance. Sometimes it's a little, little bit like that, you know, you kind of sort of lengthy consideration in kind of, you know, calm chambers and what have you. Mm. But, um, um, yeah, so anyway, relief came surging over me in great chunks, to mm. quote P.G. Woodhouse. And um, so anyway, he puts the, he puts the album on, and I listen to, like, the first 10 seconds, and it's... Oh, God, I can't really bother with this. You know, it'd all be quite a stressful, hectic sort of afternoon, evening. So I thought, <laughs> I can't... I'll tell you what, yeah, just, you just leave it on, and turn it over at the end of side one and put on side two. And what I did, I thought, I'll listen to this later. So I recorded, oh, no. I got my own little cassette recorder and made a recording of the album being transmitted over the phone and I basically write the review, which, to be honest, was half written in my head anyway, um, based on, you know, on, on, on that, you know. So um, after about a sort of three quarters of an hour, an hour, I said, all done, all done, just yeah, and uh, thanks a lot for that, mate. Same life, cheers. Phone down, a few more drinks, went to bed. I thought, you know, I'll turn and get up early in the morning and uh, turn this round, oh. no problem. So anyway, I got up about eight-ish and... Um, went over, played the cassette, the recording I'd made of the cassette from over the phone, and it was like... (laughs) shite. So basically, I had to spin out a 700-word lead review on this landmark album based on having heard the first 10 seconds over the phone. <laughs> and, oh, spin I did. And, and and it went in, it went through. I just about made it over, you know, you know to the... What did you think of it, David? Come on, give us some quotes. Oh, oh no, no. I mean, it, it's I, 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 I blanked it out of my head. I was, I was disparaging. I mean, that's a mistake for a start. I think if you're going to pull a stroke like that, at least be kind to the album. Um, <laughs> it's a real. No, I, I was disparaging, but I, it, it's very broad based. I think the Pogues aren't the young gods. Would have probably have cropped up at some mm. point, no doubt. Um, but no, I mean, and it went through. But as was often the way in those days, there was a lot of retrospective editing and editorialising. So. You know, the editor, Alan Jones, he sort of, you know, he read this in, in the editorial meeting and says, there seems to be a tendency in one or two of the reviews to be kind of 
waffling a bit and not really getting down to sort of specifics about tracks, you know, like David, I mean, I just think perhaps this, you know, maybe a bit more detail. I went, yeah, 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 fair enough, fair enough, no. (laughs) Yeah, actually fucking listen to the thing. Yeah, exactly. But, and then, so I told... And obviously, I you know told a few like my mates in the Arsquake League, you know you people did. like the Studs and Simon Reynolds, and I told him all about it. And blabbermouth it is. Next day, I go into the pub. There's Alan Jones, the editor, staring thunderously at me, and Simon sitting next to me and says, "I think I made a bit of a gaff, David." him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, you know it's um, it, it all blew over. So the Pogues annually, I I mean I. You know, I think with the Pogues, this is the only time I ever listen to the Pogues is annual, or hear the Pogues, to be honest, is annually when this kind of does the rounds along mm. with Stop the Cavalry, etc., etc. Yes. And mm. look, I mean, you know, and a, and a pall of guilt and. I think an know. apology should be made to the Pogues right yeah. here now, David. Uh, well, I, 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 I do apologise. I, I, I apologise profoundly, but it wasn't the first time I apologised, I assure you. Um, but, um, yeah. Well, this, is, this is Birmingham six levels of injustice here, isn't it? It, it, it? it definitely was. I mean, of course, the album, you know, regardless of my kind of cutting words, the album went on to sort of do gloriously well, you know, just showing the power of the press there, you know, to create yes. and destroy. Yeah. Um, it was the last album I ever bought by a contemporary band of white people, don't you know? Ah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I was disappointed yeah. by it. Yeah. I mean, I've never listened Streets to it since. Streets of Sorrow, it- Birmingham six, that's mint. But ah. Fiesta, that, that song put me right off them. I mean, I think that with this song, because it comes on every year, um, it does kind of get... To smooth. haunt you, David. I know, I know, exactly, yeah. So, but, um, you old slut on junk. <laughs> yeah, that's right, you cheap, lousy haggard. Yes. yes. Um, but you do, I mean, as well as it does get smooth with familiarity or whatever, but you do get this annual opportunity to consider all of its merits and its dimensions and facets. And I agree with everything that's, you know, positive that Sarah was saying about the song. And I think, you know, it is what it is. And I think it's masterly. And I think that in the sort of pantheon of Christmas songs, I think it really does capture that sort of complex emotions that a lot of people feel about Christmas. That a lot of it is kind of, there's there's a lot of rancor. I mean, you know, amid the bells um, singing out, et cetera, et cetera. Ringing Um, out, David. Yeah. What did I say? You said singing out because oh, you were sorry, listening sorry, yeah. to it over the phone on oh, a fucking... Yeah, probably. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, leave that. It's it. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit sketchy on, on the Pogues. But, um, um, and, and retrospectively, all hostilities towards Pogues kind of ceased with me, really. And, and actually, there's individual members like Jen Finer have done mm. really interesting work in the sort of much more kind of avant-garde vein that I genuinely do like, you know, even yeah. if I the whole sort of, you know, retro faux Irish thing or whatever at the time I found anathema. So, um, yeah. It's just as well, really, um, David. I think you you uh, you didn't dodge all the bullets, but you did dodge one, mm. which is that, uh, you know, at least you realised what had happened mm. and you didn't go, what's this, you know, it was a kind of crazy avant-garde oh, yeah. experiment. that yeah. they, you know, Like when somebody just... reviewed the other side of that John Lennon, that single-sided John Lennon LP and said it was some of the best work he'd done as a solo artist. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much, yeah, it could have gone that way, yeah. yeah. Could have been worse, could have been worse. Yeah. but not much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Fairy Tale of New York, jumped six places to number two, where it stayed for two weeks. The follow-up, If I Should Fall From Grace With God, would only get to number 58, and they would only have one more top 40 hit before McGowan was sacked by the band in 1991, which was Fiesta, which got to number 24 in July of 1988. 
Fairy Tale of New York would get to number 36 in December of 1991 and has appeared in the top 40 13 years on the bounce since 2005 and got to number 4 in January of 2009. Probably in the charts now as, as you're listening to this. It's also been voted mm. the greatest Christmas song ever in numerous polls and one of the best singles to ever get to number two. As we mentioned this time last year, it earns the writer £400,000 a year. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's also a very important song for chart music. Let me take you back to 2003 <laughs> and a youngish lad, let's call him Al who came down to London one December night for a works Christmas party that had a karaoke machine. After Reed had a go, he was approached by a young lady. <laughs> she was obviously impressed by the way he made say hello, wave goodbye, sound strangely heterosexual. <laughs> well, he was impressed that she knew certain people that he'd argued with on an internet forum. Well... They were getting on like a house on fire. So finally he dropped his guard and asked her a question that had been on his mind all night. What's Taylor Parks really like? (laughs) Well, the ice had been well and truly broken, so she thought, why the hell not? She shyly, yet boldly, asked a question in return. Will you do Fairy Tale of New York with me? (laughs) Well, he could hardly refuse. He called her an old slut on junk. (laughs) She called him a scumbag, a maggot, a cheap, lousy faggot. And then, after saying goodnight, she was gone. And that girl grew up to be Sarah B. It's all true. Sarah, this is our song. <laughs> it is, and I'm I'm sorry to you and to um, anyone who might be offended. Oh. I blame Shane McGowan yeah. and or Kirsty McColl and yeah, or the vagaries ago. of the English. Was it that long? Oh my Christ! Yeah, you should have stuck around. I would have put right out and done Lucky Stars by Dean Friedman with you. Oh man, these are the so yeah. many. So many missed opportunities of my life just coming back to me. Oh, man. Sliding doors, Sarah. Sliding doors. (laughs) (laughs) And the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day. Single. Pokes, Kirsty McCall, and Barry Taylor of New York. And now let's have a look at, at some of the climbers on this week's chart. It's the top 40 breakers, and here's level 42, and children say at number 22. It seems they've traded the years for mere complications. Cut back to Reed and Davis now standing in front of the massive video screen. Reed describes Fairy Tale of New York as a truly stupendous single, while Davis stumbles over his introduction to this week's climbers when he actually means breakers. And the first of which is Children's Say by Level 42. 
We've already covered level 42 in chart music number 31, and this single, their 20th, is setting the seal on a year that got them three top 10 hits on the bounce and a spot on that year's Prince's Trust concert at Wembley Arena. Eric Clapton joined them on Running in the Family, and Mark King gave it some thumb with Benny King on Stand By Me, and George Harrison and Ringo Starr on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. However, all was not well in Level 42 land, as guitarist and drummer Phil and Boone Gould have just walked out while they were supporting Madonna on her world tour, forcing the group to draft in Paul Gendler of Modern Romance and Neil Conti of Prefab Sprout. It's the follow-up to It's Over, which got to number 10 in September of this year, and it's the fifth cut from their seventh LP, Running in the Family, and it soared! 14 places this week from number 36 to number 22. Well, me dears, 1987 is supposed to be the year that house music started to take over, with Jack Your Body being the first number one of the year, but dance music in December 1987 is pretty still much this sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's just this kind of overhang, and I think Top of the Pops tends to reflect that, doesn't it? I mean, if something mm. sort of really struck in 1986, then it'll probably only really impact on Top of the Pops in 1988 and... Mm. Or you know or whatever, but um, I did love Love Games, and I bought it uh, when it came yeah. out um, on on twelve inch. But twenty singles, my God! I mean, they could have just left it there. I mean, that would be wonderful. It could have just been this kind of definitive statement. After which, they simply walk away. We're not going to top that. Let perfection be perfection, and mm. shine for what it is. You know, I, I, it would have been marvelous if you know if the manager and people like that said, "Look, are you sure about this? No, no, we're going to we're going to leave it there. We're mm. not going to top that, and we're not going to sully it by." Retrospective um, crap. Are you sure? Are you sure there's a big mark out there for like mediocrity and shit? And you know, you could really just spin a kind of homeopathically sort of dismal version of this, you know, until Kingdom Come. You could get 20 more singles out there. 20 more singles. Oh no, we would just be besmirching ourselves. We can't do it as artists. We just can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to pass it all up. The yachts, the, the money, meeting George Harrison and Eric Clapton, everything. Sorry, but our minds are made up. But no, no one has that kind of integrity, do they? You know, most of all, Mark King and. Uh, yeah, how Linda. dare they want to make a living? Exactly, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but you know, this is this is art. It's like Marcel Duchamp in 1923. He stopped making art. I mean, he could have carried on whacking them out, but no, he said no. Um, there ought to be silence sometimes in art, and so he didn't do. To the end of his life, he died in 1969. 1923 to 1969, he produced no more art. And I mean, people should do that a lot more often. Kraftwerk stopped in 1986 producing new stuff because they'd said everything that they had to say mm. definitively. And you just don't get enough of that, you know. But there is a demand for like, like there's this sort of thing, like some level four to two. I mean, it's like this sort of. So that's why Melody Maker stopped in two thousand. Then did it? Yeah, pretty much. Sales yeah, were rocketed to two hundred thousand. Yeah, been, but yeah, two hundred thousand. And we just, you know, with that we've Craig, done David, Craig on the t- David on a toilet. We're never going to top that. So I thought, no. no, I know sales are two hundred fifty thousand and climbing, but no. Sometimes it's a new, you know, it's a new millennium. We have to stop. Yeah, yeah I, think much, that's, I think that's about much the know. same as uh, I have to say, David. I do admire you for putting your money where your mouth is and uh, and never writing about music again after your legendary uh, Pogues review. Oh yes, yes, yes. Well, I think that was that was perhaps the opposite, really. That was a nadir <laughs> from which I've had to live down, you know, in terms of my integrity ever since. You know, so I had to redouble my efforts and restore my integrity. Um, <laughs> but yeah, level forty-two in this kind of thing. It's weird. There is actually a huge, huge 
huge demand in this country for this sort of affable yeah. beigeness, this jazzy funk. You think of group like you know, you think of the nineties, you know, the big groups of the nineties, all the groups that signify the nineties, you know, Oasis, Blur, Pulp, etc. etc. But one of the biggest selling groups of the nineties was the Lighthouse family. Yes. There is this and no one ever talks about they're so nondescript that no one ever, ever references them or no one like you know to well, We had a go them. a few episodes ago and we we struggled, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, I mean, they've probably got their own island now. They probably all live on Lighthouse Family Island and, you know, they're just <laughs> living it up, to quote, you know, the 42s. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah, they should be living in a lighthouse. I think if you've got a name like that, you've got to live yeah. up to it. Yep, yeah. The Lighthouse Family should have been made to all marry each other. Yep. And then live on a lighthouse. Absolutely, and they should have made a cartoon series of it, you know, like sort of the, yeah. the Jacksons, whatever. Yeah. Similarly, level 42 ought to be living in a flat, <laughs> a really big flat. <laughs> simply red are not allowed to wear any other colours ever. Yeah, than red, yeah. Well, yeah. Simply red. See? It's red or, yeah. Is that, is that what happens yeah. to them when they go to hell? It's like, you, the, and the literal devil says, ah, little did you know, <laughs> yes. you lived your feckless lives and now you have to weirdly play them out in... Very literal terms. Okay, yeah. all right. Maybe that's why Pogue Mahogue changed their name. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'd, speaking of that, actually, I because um, I realised that I was like, is their name then the 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 kisses or the asses? Yeah, but it is. It's the kisses. No, I think basically. it's kiss. Yeah, it's, ki- it's basically their, their kiss. The asses yeah. would have been yeah. a fantastic name. <laughs> the asses. The asses. Yeah. <laughs> Here they come with their latest single, the asses. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Gene, Gene Simmons could sue them, couldn't he? I suppose. Yes. <laughs> I hope he do, don't say that. God, Gene Simmons is 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 a, he he's not well. he's not a nice man, is he? From what uh, no, allegedly? He, no, no. He he and he would. He, he would. is a fucker. Yeah. yeah no. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, don't give Gene Simmons fairy tale of New York. No. Fucking hell. Well, Kiss should have been called the Arses. <laughs> yes, that's what they are, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The, the ass yeah. or the asses. Yeah. Just ass, a a capital A, capital S, capital S. I, I interviewed Gene Simmons once, and you're right. I mean, he's that, that Kiss are the worst band in human history, mm. and I disagreed profoundly with everything he said. But it was very, very entertaining, and it was an extremely cooperative um, in, interview. I have to say that, and very funny as well. Mm, yeah, sometimes some of the worst people can give you the best interviews, can't they? Because they, they, do, they yeah, you know, yeah. narcissists who just like to talk about themselves. Yeah. It's obvious, really. Anyway, should we talk about level forty yeah. two? Yes, let's. Yeah, let's look what I, I what I have to say about Level 42 is that I quite like Level 42. I know I was taking the piss yeah. out of them in relation to Depeche Mode last time, but uh, yes. they've got good pop melodies. I know that the, yes. the, what puts people off is the kind of the production is, is so brash and so kind of yeah. clunky. And they have that very clunky, extremely uncool. They're very, very uncool. They were always uncool. Mark King is not a cool man. He's, he's not no. been blessed with game at all. But apparently, I have to say, and uh, it, not that it's um, necessary to be a nice person, obviously sometimes arseholes make the best music, but by all accounts, Mark King, absolutely top bloke, really, really, really? nice dude, yeah. Um, yeah I believe I, that. This is not necessarily a story that proves that, but it is nevertheless a good story. Um, so, yes, this comes via a friend of a friend. Um, the... Um, who asked Mark King of Level 42 if he'd ever had any touring disasters. Um, Mm. And he said that when they were just starting out, they got a gig supporting the police um, somewhere in Italy. Um, But they weren't weren't listed and nobody knew who they were. Um, When they walked out on the stage, the fans thought it was the police, went crazy. Oh, no. uh, And then they realised... you see. Yeah, and then they realised that it was just some guys that they didn't know. And they got really angry and started started <laughs> booing. 
Oh, and, fiasco! Oh, <laughs> vendetta! Um, and they started booing and throwing shit. As as oh, people no. at gigs do when they're when they're upset. Yeah. So and and you know they very gamely carried on. It's like, well, we're here to do the job, and you know, let's just let's just do the thing. Yeah. So uh, Mark King decided that the best thing to do would be close his eyes and just just get through it. So he could feel. Oh. So he's there. He's there with his with his base snug under under his arms, oh, yes. kind of just just <laughs> just plowing on heroically and he can feel various things just hitting him and he can hear things <laughs> falling around his feet and they're kind of bouncing off him and it's like it's okay it's okay just just keep going and then and then he felt something until lodged. the sun goes down exactly you know so so and then he and then he feels something kind of lodge in his armpit somehow and oh, so no. it's like i'd better see what this is so he opens his eyes looks down it's a lit firework no <laughs> <laughs> um, I, hell. I don't know what happens after that. I'm assuming, you know, given well, he can it, still it, play the bass. He can so still well. play the bass. He probably disposed of it in in a, in a safe, <laughs> safe fashion, and uh, and nobody was hurt. But uh, yeah, that's that's the level of passion that that greeted the <laughs> Italy in 19, 1982 or something. So oh, they could have just done a jazz funk version of Roxanne. <laughs> <laughs> And then just said, oh, my name's Sting, and I yeah, think all yeah. Italians are scum. Yeah, you guys don't know any better. It's like in the, uh, you know, uh, before there was photography, you could kind of get away with, you know, and then there were only portrait paintings, you know. It's like, yeah, well, you know, they're all painted to a romantic ideal, so you can kind of get someone else to fight your duels for you, because they don't mm-hmm. know it's you. <laughs> that would have been superb if they'd just done a set of police stuff for 40-odd minutes, and then the actual police come on, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Follow that! <laughs> I'm sorry, no, they were throwing fireworks and everything. We had to do something. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, what's yeah, going to happen to us? You know. Sting would have just sued the asses off all of them, wouldn't he, really? Like a fucker. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, if ever there was a man who deserves a lit firework, throw, I do not approve of throwing lit fireworks under any circumstances except at Sting. <laughs> mm. Yeah. But it's it's funny, you know, they, I mean, it's what you say about Mark King being, you know, this lovely top bloke, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure it's true. I mean, they always talk about, like, never meet your heroes, don't they? You know, like the whole Van Morrison syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, Christ. There's also, like, never meet your villains because they turn out oh, to be yeah. bloody nice. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you've got it, yeah. And also, mm. never meet Shane McGowan because he'll probably duff you up. I did see Shane McGowan at the Boogaloo Highgate uh, about eight or nine years ago. Yeah. And I was maybe thinking about having a word about the whole fiasco. <laughs> and then, yeah. But he was just sitting there over a big mug of coffee at 5.30 in the afternoon, just looking utterly catatonic. So I thought, oh, no, I'll leave you to it. Well, that would yeah. have been the ideal opportunity, I would have thought. You know. You'd forgotten in 30 minutes, David. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe he'd taken a swing at you and just, you know, fallen on his face mm. in the carpet, you know, and you could have just scampered away. But, uh, <laughs> oh, well, these are the opportunities that we miss in life. Anyway, this song... Um, yes, I this had, song. I'd forgotten this song. It's it's yes, really good. Totally, it's really good. I really like it. It's got a really nice. Yeah, it's got a really I, nice tune. I don't mind this at all. I mean, this and Fairy Tale in New York, the the the, um, the souffle has lifted a little bit, hasn't it? <laughs> the, well, the souffle <laughs> of, of doom and mediocrity. Yeah, but I yeah I I um I know that um, Taylor did say that uh, Mark King's bass playing makes me long for a thumb screw. Yeah. But, um, in the same way as, as Simply Red were sort of very easy to hate. I think Level 42 were kind of, uh, you know, people kind of need whipping boys 
I guess, but... Uh... The thing about Level 42 was, it wasn't them, it was their fan base. You know, there was many a time that a Level 42 bubbled up in the charts. It's like, oh, I like this, but I better not. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, people think I'm one of them. I've got an escort with my name oh, on a strip <laughs> at the top of the windscreen and a, a, a blank space next to it because they haven't got a girlfriend. <laughs> That's the thing with a lot of fandoms, though, isn't it? It's like, I, yeah. you know, you've got you've to really... You've got to really suss them out before you kind of throw in your lot with any kind of group like that. Otherwise, you you look around and then you 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 discover that you're in a, a tribe that that you'd rather not be in. You know, it's yeah. like if you've ever been to an oasis. I mean, I was never an, an oasis fan, but Jesus Christ, oasis fans! I'm not sure even oasis deserved the the fans that they got. Yes. Oh God! I mean, I've I've yeah. never actually been to a football match, but I can imagine like the the worst kind of football match. Where everyone's just everyone just wants to fight. But yeah, the video they're being a bit parsimonious with the videos. But here's a, here's another clip, and uh, you know it's it's quite a nice one. Um, you know, by this point, level forty two are pretty much Mark King and his mate Mike Lindrup. And uh, yeah, they're capering around very fraternally, aren't they? In Paris, to make a point, yes. really. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Level forty two at Paris, mm. and um, they're they're arsing around with a camcorder or something that's tricked up to look like a camcorder. And they've also got this girl who looks about, I don't know, 13 or something like that. She she might be Algerian, she might be mixed race, and she's she's wearing this uh, MA1 flight jacket with all space patches on it, which makes her look the most fashionable person in the whole episode of Top of the Pops. Because <laughs> that look was all over the shop in 1988. And she's wearing a Burberry scarf as well. Mm. And she holds up some words written on a bit of a paper. And she's having a bit of a laugh, which is nice. That is nice. It's, yeah, again, very, very, uh, very literal video making. Uh, you know, children say, here are some children, and here's the thing that they're saying. Yeah, it's, right nice. It. it's nice to see a bit of sun mm. in December. <laughs> King's got a bit of a receding hairline going on, but he's got a, 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 a quite a restrained mullet to go with it to compensate. So it just looks <laughs> like his hair's just slid down his head a little bit. <laughs> he's, uh, he's kind of the Martin Clunes of, of pop, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, I think Martin Clunes would definitely play him in the uh, biopic. Well, I mean, I, I realised the other day, though, that Martin Clunes needs to play Boris Johnson when all of this particular shit is over at the moment. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Mm. He, wouldn't, he wouldn't even need to do a lot. Just give, give Martin Clunes a drink and, and hit him in the head a couple of times and he'd be, he'd be perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, good song. Got yeah. to say, well played, level 42 well again. Well played, guys. No more lit fireworks for you. Yes. So the following week, Children Say dropped one place to number 23. The follow-up, Heaven in My Hands, got to number 12 in September of 1988 and they bob around in the lower reaches of the top 40 until they split up for the first time in 1994. Right on the heels of Rick Astley, Nat King Cole, and When I Fall in Love. It will be forever, or I'll never fall in love. Born in Montgomery, Alabama in 1919, Nathaniel Coles was the son of a Baptist minister who learned to play piano from the church organist his mam. At the age of 15, he dropped out of school and joined a sextet formed by his older brother, eventually settling down in Los Angeles, where he got married at 18 and played piano in assorted clubs. 
His solo recording career began in 1940 when he recorded Sweet Lorraine and he went on to become one of the top recording stars in the USA and when the first singles chart was published in the UK in November of 1952 he went straight in at number three with Somewhere Along the Way. He'd go on to have 14 top 10 hits in the UK throughout the 50s and early 60s until he died at the age of 45 in February of 1965. Then, in November of this year, Stock Aitken and Waterman released Rick Astley's cover of When I Fall in Love, which was originally recorded by Jerry Southern for the 1952 war film One Minute to Zero, then covered by Doris Day later that year, and then comprehensively bagsied by Cole in 1956, who took it to number two in June of 1957. And before this month, the song's last appearance was when Donny Osmond took it to number four in November of 1973. Alarmed that it would keep one of their singles off the Christmas number one, and responding to the general level of revulsion over Stock Aitken and Waterman, EMI immediately released the sort of original version of the song as an outright spoiler tactic. And it's this week's highest new entry in the top 40, up from number 51 to number 20. And here's a video of Nat's appearance in the 1957 film Istanbul, which starred Errol Flynn as a pilot who gets tangled up in a Turkish diamond smuggling ring and Nat King Cole as the bloke who sings When I Fall In Love in that one scene. (laughs) First things first, me dears, obviously, the Rick Astley cover of When I Fall In Love. We've got to talk about that because, you know, Mm. people, including myself, were absolutely fucking horrified that Stock Aitken and Waterman were going to ruin Christmas and, you know, reacted to the idea of Rick Astley covering this song as if he was going to go on top of the pops and wipe his cock on a picture of Nat King Cole's face. The thing is, yes, yes, indeed. The thing about it, it's not only attempting to colonise the present, it's attempting to colonise the past Mm. as well and all these kind of of memories that people have of Christmas Christmas's past, you know, via um, films or whatever, which are still very much shown on TV at that time. They're very much part of the kind of prime time, mainstream, whatever. You know, so your Perry Como's, Bing Crosby's or whatever, and all that kind of stuff mm. was very much part of, you know, you would collide with that, you know, um, on mainstream TV and especially around Christmas. And it's like trying to colonise that by deliberately going for that kind of slightly sort of 50s-ish look, you know, perhaps mm. they've sort of distressed the um, footage slightly in such a way yeah, that it looks like it was filmed in about 1956. And The video that they put out for, uh, for, for Rick Astley's version, he's just wandering around in the snow by a log cabin that looks a bit like a medieval bus stop. And, you know, mm. they're, they're going for this sort of pensive reflective tone but to me it just looks like Rick Astley's been locked out of the house and he's waiting for his missus to get back from Gateway <laughs> I mean yeah that's yeah, that's that's the reality but um, and he, he's really been poked with a stick mm. by uh, Pete Waterman to, to sound a bit more like Nat King Cole yeah yeah he's, go down yeah, he's, he's really giving it some rubber. of that so he's got a bit of the stars in the eyes about it yeah, yeah. It's a respectable, uh, you know, queasiness aside, if you can. Uh, it, it's a respectable effort. I mean, he, he's got a really oh, good it voice. It's, it's no Silent Night by Bross. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually got the clout to sing it. Um, you know, he's not embarrassing himself by any means. Um, whether or not any of this should be happening is, is, is another matter. But he does, he, he's, he's really giving it the whole Bing Crosby in, in the yeah. video and the song. And... 
Yes. I, it's a little bit like really yes, yeah. it's a bit it, it's it's really well done it's like an incredibly good pastiche apart from yes the kind of hilarious that he looks like he's at you know the kind of dismal winter wonderland yes, things yes. that happen almost there, there hasn't been one for a couple of years i always look forward to this like the kind of you know sad children whose irate mothers have paid 30 quid a pop to see no. some fake snow and some drunk elves it's like it looks like that it's like just kids crying the rides are going mum you promised me that King Cole not Rick Astler <laughs> <laughs> yeah basically and they're, they're not real logs they're definitely not they're kind of those plastic yes like they were moulded on real logs but but they they have not seen a real log in a very very long no. time which no. kind of which sort of says it all but I don't think it's I think Rick Astley was probably fucking told to do it do you oh know yeah I mean? by, by the dastardly Pete Waterman yes. rubbing his Forced. rubbing his oil Hands. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, because, <laughs> because um, Simply Red got practically no shit at all for doing every time we say goodbye. But Rick Astley got all of it. Mm. I mean, that's Poor perhaps Rick. unfair because they should both have got shit, basically. I mean, you know. And they're both yes, gingers. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, no, 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 we don't go there. But I mean, it, it's. Um, Yet again, it's, it's you know, young white singers making some sort of statement about themselves mm. while, you know, by kind of replicating vintage black music in some way. It's just like, what are they trying to say? Why are they doing this? I mean, yes, technically, he can do it. He's technically capable. He's got the kind of, you know, he's got the range and the depth in his voice or whatever. It's not like, you know, if he was like Dove now, well, I'm fine, yeah. you know, they, they just wouldn't release it. Mm. You know, yes, he's technically capable of doing this. But why is he doing it? Why do we need this? Well, you know, why is this happening? It's been happening all bloody evening is this young white singers paying this kind of pious homage to um, the music of 20 or 30 years ago. I just don't, you know. He's more Rick Viscount Gas than Nat King Cole, isn't he, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's one thing or the other, though. It's either pious homage or it's year zero claiming of thing for yourself, and you can't really have it both ways. Well, the record industry has worked out that people like having old songs uh, at Christmas because, you know, mm. the previous year's Christmas number one it's... was Re Petite by Jackie Wilson. Mm. So, you know, we're going to get a lot of re-releases at this time of year and we're going to get a lot of cover versions. You know, uh, capit- I'm not trying to let anyone off the hook here, but capitalism gonna capitalism. Do you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> oh, yes. That's... Oh, yes. but it's, and, it's a particular and... point, though. It's a particular point at this time where there seems to be this kind of... It seems to be the sort of the dominant motif, you know, of, of, of Top of the Pops around this time, this this sort of wistfulness and reverentiality towards the past. Mm. Um, and, I mean, it's like th- these days, I mean, I don't think kids... I don't think kids would necessarily even get that it's a kind of 50s pastiche and look at that video no. because they're not actually... It, they, they don't see that sort of... that stuff on TV anymore from the 50s, the 60s or whatever. Mm. So they wouldn't be accustomed to that kind of visual language. You know, now everything's about six weeks old maximum. Mm. Um, but just in, in 1987, this was just very, very prevalent. Yeah. And I don't hold with it. <laughs> I don't. I didn't hold with it at the time. I hold with it still less now. It's not the young gods. No. It's not the young gods. Oh, and I forgot to mention about Level 42. <laughs> yeah. They weren't the young gods either, yeah. yeah. This, uh, they thought they got away song, with it. This song, though, this version of the song. Yes, that's get... the one that we should say. This is the, the Nat King Cole version that we are actually, yeah, that, that, supposed yes. to be that is actually about. on this episode of Top of the Pops, what we are talking about with our mouths. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... And the version we see here isn't Nat King Cole's original version, uh, but it's safe to say that it would have to wait until 2010 and the erection of the Burj Khalifa to find a height enormous enough to piss on Rick Astley's version. <laughs> yes, I think so. Definitely, mm. definitely. Yes, it's absolutely immaculate. Yeah. Um, but And then the, the only sort of 
doubtful. No, I, it strikes with me, I suppose, is just the idea that again there is this fixation on a lot of black music, but preferably, as I say, vintage black mm. music. And you know, it's very uneasy to look at this video where you think the only black people in that room in that video are going to be either crooning or serving drinks or back in the kitchens. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the world that it comes from. Those two white actors are a gagging to cop up with each other. They seem to like it. Mm. Mm. So they basically, it was a spoiler. Yes. Which yeah, it's they, they were cock they, It was a chart cock block on yes. on on the part mm. of uh, uh, it was warring warring record companies. Um, yes. So yeah, fiending for their Christmas bonus. So yeah, they didn't want. Well, they wanted. Um, uh, oh, I, I don't know if we can give it away. What number one is? They wanted what number one is this week to continue mm. to be number one for Christmas. So they spent yes. however exactly. much money. Um, to get their guys, mm. uh, yeah. their yeah. guy or guys or girls, right. to uh, to number one by... Mm. Um, so yeah. the Rick Astley version of When I Fall In Love came out and they figured that the way to keep that from number one was yes. to put out the original, which people would then be drawn to, hey, guys, look over here. It's like, oh, no, let's get the original. And apparently people mm. yes. did. And it didn't get that yes. to number one. It got something else to number one. I find this really, this is amazing. I mean, it's, yes. I, I don't know if, I'm, if I've been terribly naive to this point. But it's like, what what amazing skullduggery. And like, well, it might not have worked, you know. It, mm. it, but that's, obviously, there's, there's going to be all kinds of that stuff. Yeah, what, why do you want that artificial tree when you can have a real one? Yeah, look over, ooh, yeah. Smell, the, smell the sap of this one. Um, yes. But yeah, it, it, this is like it's like a caper that you could make a late eighties comedy out of. It's like you know, like mm. Brewster's Millions, mm. a working girl, or something. It's like various warring industry factions fighting for the coveted Christmas number one. And there's like yeah. the innocent hero singer who's caught up in it, and then the grieving daughter of the old time star who is at first furious with him for covering her father's classic song, but then softens towards him, and it ends in a crazy dash across Central Park in the snow to the grand offices of the yeah. official chart. And he must choose, yeah. <laughs> he must choose between winning the chart and winning her heart. Oh, See? like it. Name like yeah. Christmas Singles. Yeah, no, very good. good. I will open the negotiating at $10 million. Definitely, definitely. Danny DeVito playing Pete Ward. <laughs> yes. yes. Some sapling Rick Astley who's completely kind of sort of sig- to the whole thing. He just keeps getting slapped on the yeah. head. Like, you know, Shut up. Yeah, they were, yeah, and a kind of yeah. cigar-chomping mogul. And mm. uh, all of that, it's all, it's mm. all there. It's all there for the doing. Um, maybe another record company should have put out a version of When I Fall In Love by somebody called Dick Astley <laughs> to just confuse people even more. Uh. Dick, Astley, uh, Dick Astley and Muttley. This would be... Dick Astley. Yes. Dick, Astley. That, <laughs> Dick Astley. That's it. That's the yes, ending. Dick, Dick Astley. This is, the fa- this is the fake out ending, though, is that they rush, they're, they're breathless and all covered in snow and everything, and, and, and they, they run to the official chart. They go, there, we've got the figures. It's us, it's us. And it's like, you're yeah. too late. Yep. And it was some other cunt who had yeah. who had done like a novelty <laughs> yeah. bollocks and it's them yeah. but then they realize that it doesn't matter yes. and what really yeah. matters is it love it will be forever mm. it will be forever and then he sings it to her under a street like oh and Shane McGowan and Kirsten McCall stop arguing and put their arms around each other and walk away mm. yes they would be like it's like the the kind of the tramps mm. in trading places yeah. it would actually be them wouldn't it and uh, and they would walk by and go yeah. uh, shall we just have a drink yeah all right then yeah 
Oh, yeah, I'm writing this. You're a lovely old slut on junk. <laughs> I love you, yeah. baby. So the following yeah. weekend, record shops around the country were reporting that Nat King Cole was outselling Rick Astley to the point where extra copies had to be pressed up. The original version soared 13 places to number seven and it would eventually get to number four while Rick's version was stuck in the number two slot. Yes. The follow-up, a re-release of his 1951 single, Unforgettable, only got to number 84 in December of 1988, but he'd have one last hurrah in the top 40 when his 1961 recording of Let's Face the Music and Dance got to number 30 in March of 1994, off the back of those Allied Dunbar adverts and Torval and Dean's routine in that year's Winter Olympics. And in 1996, Natalie Cole, Nat's daughter, virtually duetted the song with him for her LP, Stardust. And Stock Aitken and Waterman would have to wait two years for their one and only Christmas number one when they produced Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid 2 and stuffed it with their own acts. Well then, pop craze youngsters, business really is starting to pick up on this episode. So come and join us tomorrow on the final stretch of this episode and let us see how this episode of Top of the Pops played out. Thank you very much, Sarah B. Cheers. Tar ever so, David Stubbs. All right, till next time. Stay pop crazed. <laughs> Chart music. Great pig.